0: Chapter 20 of Recollections of the Civil War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Denise Nordell. Recollections of the Civil War by Charles Dana. Chapter 20 The Closing Scenes at Washington. Last interview with Mr. Lincoln. Why Jacob Thompson escaped. At the deathbed of the murdered president. Searching for the assassins the letters which Mr. Lincoln had docketed assassination, at the conspiracy trial, the Confederate secret cipher, Jefferson Davis's capture and imprisonment, a visit to the Confederate President at Fortress Monroe, the Grand Review of the Union Armies, the meeting between Stanton and Sherman, and of Mr. Dana's connection with the War Department. It was one of my duties at this time to receive the reports of the officers of the Secret Service in every part of the country, on the afternoon of the fourteenth of april it was good friday i got a telegram from the provost marshal in portland maine saying i have positive information that jacob thompson will pass through portland to-night in order to take a steamer for england what are your orders jacob thompson of mississippi had been secretary of the interior in president buchanan's administration he was a conspicuous secessionist and for some time had been employed in canada as a semi-diplomatic agent of the confederate government he had been organizing all sorts of trouble and getting up raids of which the notorious attack on st albans vermont was a specimen i took the telegram and went down and read it to mr stanton his order was prompt arrest him but as i was going out of the door he called to me and said no wait better go over and see the president at the white house all the work of the day was over and i went into the president's business room without meeting anyone Opening the door, there seemed to be no one there, but, as I was turning to go out, Mr. Lincoln called to me from a little side-room, where he was washing his hands. "Hello, Dana,' said he. "'What is it? What's up?' Then I read him the telegram from Portland. "'What does Stanton say?' he asked. "'He says arrest him, but that I should refer the question to you.' "'Well,' said the President, slowly, wiping his hands, "'no, I rather think not. When you have got an elephant by the hind leg and he's trying to run away, it's best to let him run.' With this direction I returned to the War Department. "'Well, what says he?' asked Mr. Stanton. "'He says that when you have got an elephant by the hind leg and he is trying to run away, it's best to let him run.' "'Oh, stuff!' said Stanton. That night I was awakened from a sound sleep by a messenger with the news that Mr. Lincoln had been shot, and that the secretary wanted me at a house in Tenth Street. I found the President with a bullet wound in the head, lying unconscious, though breathing heavily— on a bed in a small side room while all the members of the cabinet and the chief justice with them were gathered in the adjoining parlor they seemed to be almost as much paralyzed as the unconscious sufferer within the little chamber the surgeons said there was no hope mr stanton alone was in full activity sit down here he said i want you then he began and dictated orders one after another which i wrote out and sent swiftly to the telegraph all these orders were designed to keep the business of the government in full motion until the crisis should be over It seemed as if Mr. Stanton thought of everything, and there was a great deal to be thought of that night. The extent of the conspiracy was, of course, unknown, and the horrible beginning which had been made naturally led us to suspect the worst. The safety of Washington must be looked after. Commanders all over the country had to be ordered to take extra precautions. The people must be notified of the tragedy. The assassins must be captured. The coolness and clear-headedness of Mr. Stanton under these circumstances were most remarkable. I remember that one of his first telegrams was to General Dix, the military commander of New York, notifying him of what had happened. No clearer brief account of the tragedy exists to-day than this, written scarcely three hours after the scene in Ford's theatre, on a little stand in the room where, a few feet away, Mr. Lincoln lay dying. I remained with Mr. Stanton until perhaps three o'clock in the morning. Then he said, "'That's enough. Now you may go home.' When I left, the President was still alive, breathing heavily and regularly, though, of course, quite unconscious. About eight o'clock I was awakened by a rapping on a lower window. It was Colonel Pallouze of the Adjutant General's office, and he said, "'Mr. Dana, the President is dead, and Mr. Stanton directs you to arrest Jacob Thompson.' The order was sent to Portland, but Thompson couldn't be found there. He had taken the Canadian route to Halifax.' The whole machinery of the War Department was now employed in the effort to secure the murderer of the President and his accomplices. As soon as I had recovered from the first shock of Mr. Lincoln's death, I remembered that in the previous November I had received from General Dix the following letter. Headquarters, Department of the East, New York City, November 17, 1864, C. A. Dana, Esquire. My dear sir, the enclosed was picked up in a Third Avenue railroad car— I should have thought the whole thing got up for the Sunday Mercury, but for the genuine letter from St. Louis in a female hand. The Charles Selby is obviously a manufacturer. The party who dropped the letter was heard to say he would start for Washington Friday night. He is of medium size, has black hair and whiskers, but the latter I believe to be a disguise. He had disappeared before the letter was picked up and examined. Yours truly, John A. Dix. There were two enclosures, this being one of them. Dear Louise, The time has at last come that we have all so wished for, and upon you everything depends. As it was decided before you left, we were to cast lots. Accordingly we did so, and you are to be the Charlotte Corday of the nineteenth century. When you remember the fearful, solemn vow that was taken by us, you will feel there is no drawback. Abe must die, and now. You can choose your weapons—the cup, the knife, the bullet. The cup failed us once and might again johnson who will give this has been like an enraged demon since the meeting because it has not fallen upon him to rid the world of the monster he says the blood of his gray-haired father and his noble brother call upon him for revenge and revenge he will have if he cannot wreak it upon the fountain-head he will upon some of the bloodthirsty generals butler would suit him as our plans were all concocted and well arranged we separated and as i am writing on my way to detroit i will only say that all rests upon you you know where to find your friends your disguises are so perfect and complete that without one knew your face no police telegraphic dispatch would catch you the english gentleman harcourt must not act hastily remember he has ten days strike for your home strike for your country bide your time but strike sure Get introduced, congratulate him, listen to his stories. Not many more will the brute tell to earthly friends. Do anything but fail, and meet us at the appointed place within the fortnight. Enclose this note together with one of poor Linnea. I will give the reason for this when we meet. Return by Johnson. I wish I could go to you, but duty calls me to the west. You will probably hear from me in Washington. Sanders is doing us no good in Canada. Believe me, your brother in love, Charles Selby the other was in a woman's handwriting. St. Louis, October 21, 1864 "'Dearest husband, why do you not come home? You left me for ten days only, and now you have been from home more than two weeks. In that long time only sent me one short note, a few cold words, and a check for money, which I did not require. What has come over you? Have you forgotten your wife and child? Baby calls for papa until my heart aches. We are so lonely without you.' "'I have written to you again and again, and, as a last resource, yesterday wrote to Charlie, begging him to see you and tell you to come home. I am so ill, not able to leave my room. If I was, I would go to you wherever you are, if in this world. Mamma says I must not write any more, as I am too weak. Louis, darling, do not stay away any longer from your heartbroken wife.' on reading the letters i had taken them at once to president lincoln he looked at them but made no special remark and in fact seemed to attach very little importance to them i left them with him i now reminded mr stanton of this circumstance and he asked me to go immediately to the white house and see if i could find the letters i thought it rather doubtful for i knew the president received a great many communications of a similar nature however i went over and made a thorough search through his private desk He seemed to have attached more importance to these papers than to others of the kind, for I found them enclosed in an envelope marked in his own handwriting, Assassination. I kept the letters by me for some time, and then delivered them to Judge John A. Bingham, special judge advocate in the conspiracy trial. Judge Bingham seemed to think them of importance, and asked me to have General Dix send the finder down to Washington. I wired at once to the general. He replied that it was a woman who had found the letters— that she was keeping a small store in new york had several children was a widow and had no servant that she would have to find some one to take care of her house but would be in washington in a day or two a few days later she came i was not in town with mrs hudspeth as her name proved to be arrived i had gone to chicago but from the woman's testimony on may twelfth i learned that in november eighteen sixty four just after the presidential election and on the day she said on which general butler left new york She had overheard a curious conversation between two men in a Third Avenue car in New York City. She had observed when a jolt of the car pushed the hat of one of the men forward that he wore false whiskers. She had noticed that his hand was very beautiful, that he carried a pistol in his belt, that, judging from his conversation, he was a young man of education. She heard him say that he was going to Washington that day. The young man left the car before she did, and after they had gone her daughter, who was with her, had picked up a letter from the floor mrs hudspeth thinking it belonged to her had carried it from the car she afterward discovered the two letters printed above and took them to general scott who upon reading them said they were of great importance and sent her to general dix when a photograph of booth was shown to mrs hudspeth she swore that it was the man in disguise whom she had seen in the car it was found that booth was in new york on the day that she indicated that is the day general butler left new york november eleventh and likewise that Booth had gone from there to Washington, as she had heard this man say he was going to do. The inference was that the man who had dropped the letter was Booth. I was afterward called to the stand on June 9th to testify about the letters. Judge Bingham used these documents as a link in his chain of evidence showing that a conspiracy existed to kill and murder Abraham Lincoln, William H. Seward, Andrew Johnson, Ulysses S. Grant, Edwin M. Stanton, and others of his advisers, and that Booth was a partner in this conspiracy. I have said that I was in Chicago when Mrs. Hudspeth gave her testimony. Just after I reached there, I received from Major T. F. Eckert, the head of the military telegraph, a message saying that the court wanted me immediately as a witness in the conspiracy trial. I returned at once, and on the 18th of May appeared in court. I was wanted that I might testify to the identity of a key to a secret cipher which I had found on the 6th of April in Richmond. On that day I had gone into the office of Mr. Benjamin, the Confederate Secretary of State, On a shelf, among Mr. Benjamin's books and other things, I had found a secret cipher-key. I saw it was the key to the official Confederate cipher, and, as we had at times to decipher at the War Department a good many documents written in that cipher, it seemed to me of interest, and I brought it away with several other interesting documents. When I returned to Washington, I gave it to Major Eckert, who had charge of cipher-dispatches in the War Department." now on the night of mr lincoln's assassination lieutenant w h terry had been sent to the national hotel to seize the trunk of j wilkes booth among other things he found a paper containing a secret cipher when this was given to major eckert he immediately saw that it was the same as the one which i had found in richmond it was thought that possibly by means of this evidence it could be shown that booth was in communication with the confederate government i was called back to identify the cipher key Major Eckert at the same time presented dispatches written in the cipher, found in Booth's trunk, and sent from Canada to the Confederates. They had been captured and taken to the War Department, where copies of them were made. By the key which I had found, these dispatches could be read. These dispatches indicated plots against the leaders of our government, though whether Booth had sent them or not was, of course, never known." throughout the period of the trial i was constantly receiving and answering messages and letters relative to the examination or arrest of persons suspected of being connected with the affair in most cases neither the examinations nor arrests led to anything The persons had been acquaintances of the known conspirators, or they had been heard to utter disloyal sentiments, and had been reported to the department by zealous Unionists. It was necessary, however, under the circumstances, to follow up every clue given us, and under Mr. Stanton's directions I gave attention to all cases reported. While the trial was going on in Washington, Jefferson Davis was captured on May 10th near Irwinsville, Georgia, by a detachment of General Wilson's cavalry. Mr. Davis and his family, with Alexander H. Stevens, lately vice-president of the Confederacy, John H. Regan, postmaster-general, Clement C. Clay, and other state prisoners, were sent to Fortress Monroe. The propeller Clyde, with the party on board, reached Hampton Roads on May 19th. The next day, May 20th, Mr. Stanton sent for me to come to his office. He told me where Davis was, and said that he had ordered General Nelson A. Miles to go to Hampton Roads to take charge of the prisoners, transferring them from the Clyde to the Fortress. Mr. Stanton was much concerned lest Davis should commit suicide. He said that he himself would do so in like circumstances. "'I want you to go to Fortress Monroe,' he said, and caution General Miles against leaving Davis any possible method of suicide. Tell him to put him in fetters if necessary. Davis must be brought to trial. He must not be allowed to kill himself. Mr. Stanton also told me that he wanted a representative of the War Department down there to see what the military was doing, and to give suggestions and make criticisms and send him full reports.' The status of Jefferson Davis at the time explains Mr. Stanton's anxiety. It should be remembered that Davis had not surrendered when the capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, was captured. Neither had he surrendered with either of the two principal armies under Lee and Johnston. At that time the whole Confederate army west of the Mississippi was still at large. To allow Davis to join this force was only to give the Confederacy an opportunity to reassemble the forces still unsurrendered and make another stand for life even more important than this consideration was the fact that davis was charged in president johnson's proclamation of may second eighteen sixty five offering a reward for his capture with instigating the assassination of president lincoln whereas it appears from evidence in the bureau of military justice that the atrocious murder of the late president abraham lincoln and the attempted at assassination of the hon w h seward secretary of state were incited concerted and procured by and between jefferson davis late of richmond virginia and other rebels and traitors against the government of the united states harbored in canada now therefore to the end that justice may be done i andrew johnson president of the united states do offer and promise for the arrest of said persons or either of them within the limits of the united states so that they can be brought to trial the following rewards one hundred thousand dollars for the arrest of jefferson davis the provost marshal general of the united states is directed to cause the descriptions of said persons with notice of the above rewards to be published it was with the above facts in mind that i started for hampton roads on may twentieth on the twenty second the prisoners were transferred from the clyde to the fortress the quarter selected for davis's prison was a casemate such as at the time as well as at the present is occupied by officers and their families in fact an officer with his family was moved out of the particular casemate in which davis was placed Anyone who will take the trouble to visit fortress monroe can see the place still and it certainly has not to-day a gloomy or forbidding appearance The whole scene of the transfer i described in a long telegram which i sent to mr stanton on the twenty-second as it contains my fresh impressions and has never before been published i give it here in full from fortress monroe one p m may twenty-second eighteen sixty five hon e m stanton secretary of war the two prisoners have just been placed in their respective casemates the sentries are stationed both within and without their doors the bars and locks are fastened and the regular routine of their imprisonment has begun at precisely one o'clock general miles left with a tug and a guard from the garrison to go for davis and clay at half-past one the tug left the clyde for the fortress she landed at the engineer's wharf and the procession led by the cavalrymen of colonel pritchard's command moved through the water battery on the east front of the fortress and entered by a postern leading from that battery the cavalrymen were followed by general miles holding davis by the right arm next came half a dozen soldiers and then colonel pritchard with clay and last the guard which miles took out with him the arrangements were excellent and successful and not a single curious spectator was anywhere in sight davis bore himself with a haughty attitude his face was somewhat flushed but his features were composed and his step firm in clay's manner there was less expression of bravado and dramatic determination both were dressed in gray with drab slouched hats davis wore a thin dark overcoat his hair and beard are not so gray as has been reported and he seems very much less worn and broken by anxiety and labor than mr blair reported when he returned from richmond last winter the parties were not informed that they were not to be removed to the fortress until general miles went on board the clyde but they had before learned generally what was their destination from his staff officers davis parted yesterday shedding tears at the separation The same scene has just been renewed at his parting from Harrison, his private secretary, who left at one o'clock for Washington. In leaving his wife and children he exhibited no great emotion, though she was violently affected. He told her she would be allowed to see him in the course of the day. Clay took leave of his wife in private, and he was not seen by the officers. Both asked to see General Halleck, but he will not see them. The arrangements for the security of the prisoners seems to me as complete as could be desired each one occupies the inner room of a casemate the window is heavily barred a sentry stands within before each of the doors leading into the outer room these doors are to be grated, but are now secured by bars fastened on the outside two other sentries stand outside of these doors an officer is also constantly on duty in the outer room whose duty is to see his prisoners every fifteen minutes the outer door of all is locked on the outside and the key is kept exclusively by the general officer of the guard two sentries are also stationed without that door and a strong line of sentries cuts off all access to the vicinity of the casemates another line is stationed on the top of the parapet overhead and a third line is posted across the moats on the counterscarps opposite the places of confinement the casemates on each side and between these occupied by the prisoners are used as guard-rooms and soldiers are always there a lamp is constantly kept burning in each of the rooms the furniture of each prisoner is a hospital bed, with iron bedstead, chair and table, and a movable stool-closet. A Bible is allowed to each. I have not given orders to have them placed in irons, as General Halleck seemed opposed to it, but General Miles is instructed to have fetters ready if he thinks them necessary. The prisoners are to be supplied with soldiers' rations cooked by the guard. Their linen will be issued to them in the same way. I shall be back to-morrow morning. C. A. Dana. Before leaving Fortress Monroe on May 22nd, I made out for General Miles the order here printed in facsimile. Fortress Monroe, May 22nd, 1865. Brevet Major General Miles is hereby authorized and directed to place manacles and fetters upon the hands and feet of Jefferson Davis and Clement C. Clay, Jr., whenever he may think it advisable in order to render their imprisonment more secure. By order of the Secretary of War, C. A. Dana, Assistant Secretary of War. This order was general miles's authority for placing fetters upon davis a day or two later when he found it necessary to change the inner doors of the casemate, which were light wooden ones without locks. While these doors were being changed for grated ones, anklets were placed on davis. They did not prevent his walking, but did prevent any attempt to jump past the guard, and they also prevented him from running. As soon as the doors were changed-it required three days, I think-the anklets were removed i believe that every care was taken during mr Davis's imprisonment to remove cause for complaint medical officers were directed to superintend his meals and give him everything that would excite his appetite as it was complained that his quarters in the casemate were unhealthy and disagreeable he was after a few weeks transferred to carroll hall a building still occupied by officers and soldiers that davis's health was not ruined by his imprisonment at fortis Monroe is proved by the fact that he came out of the prison in better condition than when he went in and that he lived for twenty years afterward and died of old age i hurried back to washington from fortis Monroe to be present at the grand review of the armies of the potomac and tennessee which had been arranged for may twenty third and twenty fourth i reached the city early in the morning the streets were all alive with detachments of soldiers marching toward capitol hill for it was there that the parade was to start Thousands of visitors were also in the streets. May twenty-third was given up to the review of the Army of the Potomac, and by nine o'clock General Meade and his staff at the head of the Army started from the Capitol. Soon after I joined the company on the reviewing officer's stand in front of the White House in just the place which the reviewing stand now occupies on inauguration days. President Johnson had the central position on the platform. Upon his right a seat was retained for the commander of the corps undergoing review— As soon as the corps commander with his staff had passed the grandstand at the head of his troops he rode into the grounds of the White House, dismounted, and came to take his position at the right of Mr. Johnson, while his troops continued their march. When all his men had passed he gave up his place to the commander of the next corps in the column, and so on. Next to the corps commanders were seated Secretary Stanton and Lieutenant General Grant, on the left of the president was postmaster-general dennison and on the first day of the parade while the army of the potomac passed major-general meade and on the second day while the army of the tennessee passed major-general sherman the other members of the cabinet many army officers the assistant secretaries in the different departments and a number of guests invited by the president and the secretaries were grouped around these central personages On the 24th, when Sherman's army was reviewed, I sat directly behind Mr. Stanton at the moment when General Sherman, after having passed the grandstand at the head of his army, dismounted and came on to the stand to take his position and review his soldiers. As he had to pass immediately in front of Secretary Stanton in order to reach the place assigned to him on the President's right, I could see him perfectly. I watched both men closely, for the difficulty between Stanton and Sherman was at that moment known to everybody." the terms upon which sherman in april had accepted the surrender of general joseph e johnston's army in north carolina went beyond the authority of a military commander and touched upon political issues it is true that these terms were made conditional upon the approval of the government nevertheless mr stanton was deeply indignant at the general for meddling with matters beyond his jurisdiction no doubt his indignation was intensified by his dislike of sherman the two men were antagonistic by nature sherman was an effervescent mercurial expansive man springing abruptly to an idea expressing himself enthusiastically on every subject and often without reflection stanton could not accommodate himself to this temperament when the memorandum of the agreement between johnston and sherman reached stanton he sent grant to the general in hot haste and then published in the newspapers which need not have known anything of the affair a full account of the unwise compact and an indignant repudiation of it by the government naturally this brought down a furious attack upon sherman all his past services were forgotten for a time and he was even called a traitor the public quickly saw the injustice of this attitude so did most of the men in the government and they hastened to appease sherman who was violently incensed over what he called stanton's insult i think he never forgave the secretary when on may nineteenth he reached washington with his army which he had marched northward across the battlefields of virginia he refused to have anything to do with stanton although grant tried his best to bring about a reconciliation and the president and several members of the cabinet showed him every attention i was of course curious to see what general sherman would do in passing before mr stanton to take his place on the stand the general says in his memoirs that as he passed stanton offered his hand and he refused to take it he is entirely mistaken. I was watching narrowly. The secretary made no motion to offer his hand or to exchange salutations in any manner. As the general passed, Mr. Stanton gave him merely a slight forward motion of his head, equivalent, perhaps, to a quarter of a bow. In May I had been asked to become the editor of a new paper to be founded in Chicago, The Republican. The active promoter was a Mr. Mack, and the concern was organized with a nominal capital of five hundred thousand dollars. Only a small part of this was ever paid up— a large block of the stock was set aside as a bonus to induce a proper man to become the editor. Mr. Mack had offered the post to me, and through the influence of the Hon. Lyman Trumbull and other prominent men of Illinois, I was persuaded to accept it. In deciding on the change, I had arranged to stay in Washington until I could finish the routine business upon which I was then engaged, and until Mr. Stanton could conveniently spare me. This was not until the first of July on the first day of the month i sent to the president my resignation as assistant secretary of war and a few days later i left the capital for chicago end of chapter twenty recording by denise nordell modesto california end of recollections of the civil war by charles donna